0: Welcome to the Wicket. Hello, and welcome to your usual serving of cricket chat from Arab News here at the Wicket. I'm Brian Murgatroyd and with me to chew over the happenings in all things cricket are John Pike, the Arab News columnist and Sebash Hummergain, Arab News cricket reporter. Hello, gentlemen. How are you?
1: Good morning. Yep. All ready to go? Yeah, I'll save Brian.
0: Well, we look back on the first men's test between Australia and Pakistan in Perth with a crushing win for the hosts. We talk women's cricket, reviewing the latest international action in India, New Zealand and South Africa, as well as the Africa qualifier for next year's T20 World Cup. We assess the West Indies England men's T20i series that's ongoing in the Caribbean. We chat about South Africa, India and that men's white ball action going on in South Africa. There's the first two one-day internationals of a series between New Zealand and Bangladesh to digest. We reflect on the Island Zimbabwe men's white ball series that's wrapped up in Harare. We look back on the auctions ahead of next year's Pakistan Super League and Indian Premier League. We wrap up the Asian Cricket Council's Under-19 Asia Cup. And we discuss developments in the UAE's own T20 franchise league, the ILT20. So, as ever, lots here to get our teeth into, so here goes. Let's start with Australia against Pakistan. And I think, as most people predicted, the first test in Perth went emphatically in favour of the hosts. They won by 360 runs with a day to spare. David Warner answered his critics with a tone-setting 164 on day one. Mitchell Marsh was player of the match for innings of 90 and 63, plus the wicket of Barbara Azam. Alex Carey took his 100th test dismissal and Nathan Lyon reached 500 test wickets on his comeback from the calf injury that cut short his Ashes campaign. For Pakistan, well, positives were thin on the ground, but the two seam bowling debutantes, Amir Jamal with six wickets in the first innings and Kurram Shahzad with five wickets in the match, could walk away with their heads held high. John... This was Australia at their brutal best in home conditions, wasn't it? Absolutely.
1: And it's no surprise. Relentless pressure throughout the match. It was a good toss to win. The wicket deteriorated. Some deliveries reared and others kept low. And, you know, Pakistan only lasted, what, 30 overs in the second innings. I think it's also worth noting the attendance over the four days, short of 60,000 in a 60,000-capacity stadium. So Test cricket really does have to watch out for itself in in terms of uh, attendance at at, uh, some of the matches.
0: Sebastian, did you see anything from Pakistan that encourages you to think they'll be competitive in the Boxing Day test in Melbourne or the New Year test in Sydney?
2: Pakistan, I think the way they started their innings was excellent. They were on the game until day two, but uh, they couldn't continue the same on day three. I think they lost three important wickets after the drinks in morning session. And just kept them away after the lunch. And Khawaz and Marsh took the game away there after Pakistan didn't put any fight in the fourth innings. Uh, from what we saw in Perth, I think this is going to be a long series for Pakistan. If you want to give a fight down under, you'll need to bat long and hard like India did. And uh, I think that's something Pakistan is missing. And I, I don't see any chances looking at the performance right now.
0: Well, the second test starts on Boxing Day, December the 26th in Melbourne. And prior to that... Pakistan have shoehorned in an extra two-day practice match in Melbourne in an attempt to ensure they're absolutely ready to go for that 26th of December. Let's talk women's cricket now and let's start with the India-England test match in Mumbai. And What a comprehensive win for India, humbling the visitors by 347 runs in three days. England were bowled out for 136 and 131 and they looked ill-equipped to cope with conditions where the ball turned as Deep De Sharma took a scarcely believable 9 for 39 in the match. John, Heather Knight tried to brush the result aside afterwards and to an extent she has a point. There wasn't much preparation time for his side. They don't play a lot of red ball cricket. Conditions were not what England are used to. And the team won the T20i series, which, with the T20 World Cup next year, had to be a priority. All the same, it wasn't great from an England perspective, was it?
1: No, it's very disappointing. England's frailties against spin had been trailed, but this was pretty much a disaster. I mean, neither side had played much red ball cricket. It seemed that India adapted much better admitted to local conditions, after they'd played some below-par T20 cricket, and it must put them in very good heart for the upcoming test against Australia, which is the first one in India, I think, since 1983-84.
0: Yes, it's been a long time coming, but I just wonder, subhash Could this result and India's success actually be a serious shot in the arm for women's test cricket? After all, India is the game's most influential board. So if they suddenly start to want more tests, then that has to be good for the format, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, Brian, it's good for the format and whole of women's game. Actually, there were numbers in attendance for the game too. Uh, WPL seems to have brought some limelight into women's game in India, which was missing for a long time. And it is only better if they get more games, especially in the longer formats. Like uh, Heather Knight mentioned, I think uh, there has been very less red Bull cricket in women's game. And if India wants to play, I think there will be boards crowding around wanting to play them. And the more the matches, the merrier.
0: Next up, there's another test match for India, this time against Australia, Starting on December the 22nd in New Zealand, the hosts secured a measure of revenge for the T20i series loss by exacting a 2-1 series win over visitors Pakistan in the all important ODI series. But after New Zealand's comfortable win in match one of the series, which we covered in the previous podcast, matches two and three were thrillers. New Zealand won the second game by one wicket with the last pair adding 13 to scrape over the line before match three saw a tie settled in a super over with a Pakistan win. That success in the final game of the tour has pushed Pakistan up to second in the ICC Women's Championship table with the top six sides qualifying for the One Day International Cricket World Cup. But that position is deceptive as Pakistan have played more matches than any other side in the table and is still likely to drop out of the top six when all matches are played. With the result, it will probably have to compete in the qualifier for a spot in that World Cup. Sabash, all the same, it's still been a very good tour for Pakistan in unfamiliar conditions and that win in match three was Pakistan's first against New Zealand in New Zealand and only their second in 17 one-day internationals between the teams.
2: Yeah, the result didn't go their way overall, but I think they've been inconsistent throughout this journey. And the last two matches, I think that they'll get some positives out of that. But I think Pakistan, they didn't perform up to the calibre in this uh, overall series. We saw them struggling in Bangladesh. That was a big surprise. And I think uh, New Zealand, they, they they went there in hope of getting something out and glad that they got the third ODI in their favour.
0: John, how do you see things shaping up now in the women's championship table? I think it's worth
1: reminding ourselves that each team plays 24 matches in eight three-match series. Pakistan's now played 18 of those 24. And whilst they are joint second, uh, teams between second and seventh spots are separated by only three points. So there's much to play for. India will qualify as hosts. So the other five are likely to be Australia, New Zealand, England, South Africa, and probably plus one from Pakistan, Bangladesh or maybe Sri Lanka.
0: In South Africa, as we record this podcast on Wednesday, December the 20th, the hosts are playing Bangladesh in Potchefstroom in the second one, one-day International, of their three-match series. And it follows a stunning 119-run win for Bangladesh in the first match in East London. Sebastian, that win for Bangladesh in the opening match of the series just underlines the progress they continue to make, doesn't it?
2: Yes, indeed. I think we've been heaping praise on Bangladesh's progress for the start and uh, they've just continued their form. Uh, Mursida once again was brilliant, this time dropping in at number three to let experience Faganahak open the innings and that came up really well. Bangladesh were impressive as a bowling unit, but I think lately their batting unit have stepped up and they've produced results on their favour due to that.
0: John, the loss for South Africa in one of the two completed T20Is and the thrashing they received in the first one-day international, is it a blip? A sign of Bangladesh's rapid improvement, or something more worrying for South Africa to digest?
1: I think it's a sign of Bangladesh's improvement. And if they continue this way, then it would be the first series win in South Africa. I think Sabash mentioned the disciplined bowling unit. I think South Africa have been below, below par, and should they lose this next match, then I think it would be worrying. And uh, on top of that, they have to go away to Australia and India.
0: The Africa Women's T20 World Cup qualifier wrapped up in Entebbe, Uganda on Sunday, December the 17th, with Zimbabwe beating Uganda by six wickets to secure the title. But of greater importance was that both sides sealed their spots in the global qualifier that's set to take place in the UAE next year. It was an eight-team event in Uganda, with the other teams taking part being Tanzania, Botswana, Kenya, Namibia, Rwanda, and Nigeria. And the final produced a special moment with Zimbabwe off-spinner Precious Marange taking a hat-trick as part of a stunning set of figures of five for seven. Zimbabwe and Uganda will go forward to join Ireland, the Netherlands, Scotland, Sri Lanka, Thailand, the UAE, the USA and Vanuatu in the global qualifier with two of the 10 teams in action earning spots in the main event in Bangladesh alongside the host's plus Australia, England, India, New Zealand, the West Indies, Pakistan and South Africa. Sebash, you've sung the praises of Uganda's women before on this podcast. And this, I guess, is an illustration of the progress
2: they're making. Uganda, I think they're getting rewards for their investment into the game. Also a lesson to others that if you give time, it will certainly give results. Uganda have really uh, made most out of Africa's rise in cricket. They are constantly playing matches around and that has helped them elevate the game. They were unbeaten until the finals and I think they gave Zimbabwe a run for the money looking at the quality of squads. They played in home soil which was a bit of an advantage but uh, now that global qualifiers is around I think they'll test themselves in new conditions against new teams and I think uh, This is a good thing for overall African cricket itself.
0: John, the makeup of that global qualifier now confirmed. And I think everyone would expect Sri Lanka, who, let's not forget, won a series against England in England in September to be one of the two sides to go through. That makes it a really cutthroat process to see which side will take the other spot. Who do you have faith in to take that spot? And isn't it a sign, perhaps, that the next edition of the T20 World Cup should be expanded to take in more of these teams?
1: It's certainly a very competitive scenario. In terms of rankings for those teams, Zimbabwe, Thailand, Scotland, the UAE are locked into positions 11 and 15 on the rankings. And yes, I agree, it would be good to see more of them playing at the top table, getting more exposure and, uh, and improving along the way.
0: Let's look back now on matches 2, 3 and 4 of the West Indies England men's T20i series. The West Indies won the first match, which we spoke about in our previous podcast, before taking a 2-0 lead in the five-game series with a 10 run win in match two, Brandon King made 82 not out from 52 balls, and captain Rothman Powell a 28 ball 50 as the home side made 176 for seven, and England fell those 10 runs short despite Sam Curran's fighting 50. But then England started the fight back. In match three, they rallied in an incredible run chase. As Phil Salt made an unbeaten 109 from 56 balls, while Harry Brooke chipped in with an incredible 31 not out from just seven deliveries to see Joss uh, Butler's side home. They uh, chased down West Indies 222 for six with seven wickets and one ball in hand. They scored 86, if you can believe that, in the last 29 balls faced to win the match. And in match four, England went even further. They scored 267 in just those 20 overs, including another 100 from Phil Salt to level the series up at two apiece. John, there's been an increasing amount of pressure on England white ball coach Matthew Mott with England's recent white ball form. How justified is it? And has Phil Salt helped to save his job?
1: Well, there'll be a lot of relief after the third match and even more after the fourth match. I think... um... There are signs of England settling down. Um, it takes a while for a new coach to come in. Uh, it also has also been quite a bit of churn in the team. And it's good to see a smile back on uh, on Butler's face. So I think they've turned the corner. I was never disheartened or dispirited. Um, but I think um, I think they've shown that there's far too much talent in the team for them to not
0: succeed. Sebash, the West Indies have Rovman Powell as captain, Sherfane Rutherford, Andre Russell, Jason Holder. It's a really strong middle order. The batting looks in good order, in fact. But how content are you with their bowling going into next year's ICC T20 World Cup, given the thrashings they've taken in matches three and
2: four? West Indies for me looks like an unpredictable team at the moment. I think on the day, they can take on any side. Their batting lineup is lengthy and had some serious firepower too. The order is sorted there. But with bowling, I think they have far too many options and this may be a problem. They lack proper leader in the bowling attack for me. Akil Hossein, I think is a sort of spinner with Godokes Moti having had his impressive CPL campaign. But in pace, I think uh, they have too many options. Um, Al-Zari, Foddy, Hossein fighting for the spot. Uh, Holder, Russell and Mears, I think they can cover. But still, the struggle in the death overs and that we've seen in England tour as well.
0: Let's chat now about India against South Africa. And it appears that South Africa, in winning the second men's T20i against India, have grabbed the tiger's tail, as India have reacted with two stunning performances, first to level up the three-match T20i series. Remember, the first match was washed out and then inflict a thrashing on the hosts in the first One Day International of the tour. But then, in match two of the One Day International series, the tables were well and truly turned, South Africa thrashed India this time, bowling them out for 211 before Tony de Zorzi's maiden international 100 gave them an eight-wicket win with 45 balls in hand. Sebastian, how do you account for such wildly fluctuating results?
2: I think experimentation on the side has brought India to this. Uh, They announced multi-format squads with lots of changes in between. And even from game one to game two, I think there were changes in batting order and personnel as well. Sai Sudarshan looks to have grasped the opportunity with both hands. But in the middle it uh, didn't fare out well. Rinko Singh's ODI debut, it didn't go as planned. But I think uh, South Africa, on the other hand, they stuck to the plans. De Geo's batting was a treat to watch uh, for the fans after bowling units. Fantastic job. And I think uh, Thursday's decided, I think, that will be exciting to see.
0: John, the openers for both sides have grabbed their chances. Sai Sudarsan with two 50s in his first two one-day internationals and Azorzi, of course. Has anyone else caught your attention?
1: The other opener to look out for is getting a second chance is Matthew Breesker. He hasn't scored too many runs yet. And then on the bowling side, I think the one to look out for is Nandre Berger, who had got uh, three for 30, I think, in the second uh, ODI. So um, South Africa, was all looking to blood talent, and there uh, seems to be some coming through.
0: Well, if it seems like no time at all since uh, Bangladesh and New Zealand were doing battle in a test series in Bangladesh, well, you'd be right. But now here they are, almost 7,000 miles away from Dhaka, playing um, white ball cricket in Dunedin and Nelson. New Zealand won a rain-shortened first match of the series by 44 runs, with Will Young making 105, while Tom Latham made 92. And in Game 2, which wrapped up in Nelson just before we recorded uh, this podcast, it was an excellent win for New Zealand by seven wickets. Despite Sumya Shaka's brilliant 169, it wasn't enough uh, to Stop New Zealand cruising home, chasing the 292 they required for victory with more than three overs in hand. John, surely nothing says the madness of modern cricket scheduling uh, than this series, so hot on the heels of the two sides playing each other in a different format on another continent.
1: This is true, but it is modern cricket and they have to fill in in order to um, follow the. Their rankings. Um, so it's in a way inevitable.
0: Sebastian, no surprise that the home side has won both matches so far in conditions they're far more used to than, of course, Bangladesh. And the ease with which New Zealand chased down that target in match two really shows that these days, 300 is very much a pass score.
2: Yeah, New Zealand have won the match, but I think Bangladesh gave them a good fight. so uh, Sarkar stood tall and scored big, but I think New Zealand are too good in the back. Had some good partnership in between, and they were home without any hiccups. Young uh, and Nichols, both of them missed out on three figures, but a uh, good thing is they're on course for a 3-0 win, and that matters more. I think uh, New Zealand at home, I think they're just a team to beat.
0: Let's talk now about Zimbabwe against Ireland. And Ireland's men have completed a highly successful white ball tour of Zimbabwe by adding a 2-0 One Day International Series win against the hosts to an earlier 2-1 success in the T20i series in Paul Sterling's first tour as the full-time limited overs captain. Zimbabwe's batting was the issue in the One Day International Series. They stood at 121 for six when rain came to wash out match one but uh, then could muster only 166 and 197 in matches two and three, with Ireland winning by four and seven wickets, respectively. Sebastian, there were new faces in the Zimbabwe lineup, but after failing to reach both the Cricket World Cup and the T20 World Cup and now this disastrous white ball campaign against Ireland, how deep is the hole Zimbabwe now found themselves in and Is there a way out of it, at least in the short term?
2: Well, the pen doesn't look to go away from Zimbabwe at the moment. Razas captaincy hasn't worked for them looking at the results, but I think they have to have to perform. As a batting unit, they've failed in that. If you're not putting big scores in your home top, I think that is a problem. And uh, they've changed personnel in between. There's quality in the lineup that we can see. But uh, they're just going through a rough phase uh, against Ireland. I think uh, Ireland uh, stuck to their plans, got the results. But Zimbabwe, they were, not, they, were they couldn't uh, perform at their best. And to have that performance in front of the home fans, I think that adds up to the pressure. All eyes will be in the Sri Lanka Tour next month uh, in a very different condition. And hopefully they'll have something out from there.
0: John, what a great tour for Ireland. Andrew Balbirnie's now back in the ranks and making runs. And we've seen bowlers Josh Little, Mark Adair and, and Graham Hume, who had a really good series, plus George Dockrell, Harry Tector and Curtis Camphor in the middle order. They've got the makings of a competitive white ball side. And it's a, a real contrast to their disappointing Cricket World Cup qualifying campaign in Zimbabwe, less than six months ago what's changed for them do you think apart from uh, the captaincy obviously
1: well they played with a sense and purpose I understand that um, Balberley and and, uh, Sterling are are good mates so I don't think think there's harmony in the camp maybe just a a fresh look at things but I think the most impressive uh, aspect to it has been the pace bowlers as you mentioned and and there's been some very good work done in that respect by uh, Ryan Eagleson so um, it's Great to see Ireland doing well and um, uh, putting away the the blues of previous uh, competition. And I, I like to think they're going from strength to strength here.
0: Let's talk auctions now. And the Pakistan Super League and Indian Premier League auctions have taken place since our last podcast, The Pakistan Super League auction took place in Lahore on December the 13th and Lahore calendars, the defending champions, have bolstered their ranks by recruiting South African batter Rassi van der Dusen and destructive Pakistan batter Fakha Zaman. The runners-up in the latest edition played earlier this year, the Multan Sultans, have signed up England duo David Willey and David Milan while Kyron Pollard is heading to Karachi Kings. Sebastian, what were your headlines from the auction?
2: Brian, I think it has to be Pollard. I think he's still in demand as a player in the leagues around the world, but uh, is seated as a coaching team in IPL. And to have him as top pick with not so much competitive cricket is a big risk for me. Also, Noor Ahmad getting picked by Jalmi, uh, prospect of Risa Hendrix and David Amalan opening for Multan is an. Exciting thing to see. Uh, Lao they have strengthened their batting unit with Fakhar and Rashi in the team, and I think something that went on look is Nasim Shah will be playing with his younger brothers Hunan Shah and with in Islamabad, and Nasim straight away denied that uh, they were there because of. Him, but their hard work.
0: John, there's a huge amount of overseas talent in the PSL now. Where do you think it sits in the grand scheme of things, the tournament? Obviously, the IPL is uh, the number one T20 franchise tournament, but surely the PSL now has a legitimate claim to be second in the pecking order ahead of the Big Bash in Australia and the Caribbean Premier League, with new leagues like the SA20 and the UAE's own ILT20 still trying to establish their credibility. Is the PSL number two for you now?
1: I think it depends on what criteria you use. You've got a choice out of player's salary, revenue, digital rights, um, ownership type, market valuation, prize money, player status, geographical distribution of the players. Obviously, none of them uh, match IPL. I don't think there's that much between PSL and and BBL at, at this stage.
0: The Indian Premier League auction took place for the first time away from India, in Dubai on Tuesday, December the 19th, and there was a massive amount of spending from the franchises. By my reckoning, there were at least $7 millionaires created, with Pat Cummins going to Sunrisers Hyderabad and Mitchell Stark heading to the Kolkata Knight Riders, they were the two players who topped two million US dollars in auction fees. In fact, Stark's price almost went to three million. On top of that, New Zealander Daryl Mitchell went for one point seven million to Chennai. West Indies fast bowler Alzari Joseph cost Royal Challengers Bangalore one point four million. Young Australia fast bowler Spencer Johnson headed to the Gujarat Titans off the back of a one point two million dollar fee. And there were young India players as well. Harsha Patel, who cost Punjab Kings $1.4 million, and Samir Rizvi, who went to Chennai for an eye-watering $1.12 million. John, what did you make of it? And were you surprised at any players not signed, such as Steve Smith or or Josh Inglis?
1: I think you've um, hit the nail on the head by mentioning quick bowlers, because that seemed to be where the the focus was in this mini-auction either fast bowlers or young Indian talent. So um, uh, both Cummings uh, and Stark were able to command uh, very high fees. Their um, sort of partner in crime, Josh Hazelwood, uh, you would have thought would, um, would get a look in, but uh, I think for personal reasons, uh, not being available the first part of the tournament, probably counted against him. I'm not surprised. Steve Smith's not in there. I mean, his T20 record um, isn't as uh, late, hasn't been that that
0: good. Sebastian, which teams, in your opinion, had good auctions and which ones, if any, fell short?
2: I think Sunrisers, Hyderabad and Chennai Super Kings had a very good auction. Yes, especially after acquisition of further That amount and getting Pat Cummins, I think uh, that's a big win. Uh, it's a pity that only four overseas players will be playing and Daniel Vittori is going to be having a severe selection headache there. Uh, Chennai, on the other hand, got Rachin for just 1.8 crores and Gujarat sniping uh, Azmat Omarzai for his brace price. I think that's daylight robbery there. On the other hand, KKR, I think they got stuck and still... <laughs> are one-baller shot, as we spoke in earlier podcasts, they wanted one or two pace ballers and ran out of funds after raining money over stock. RCB went on the same line and ended up paying massive 11 crores on Alzari. Uh, I think the motto of this auction was: if you're pace, you're getting paid.
0: Yes, it seems that way, doesn't it? And we've got that tournament to look forward to as a build-up to the T20 World Cup that comes up in the middle of the year. Let's chat now about the Asian Cricket Council Under-19 Asia Cup, which wrapped up in Dubai on Sunday, the 17th of December, with a final I think no one was expecting, as Bangladesh beat the UAE by 195 runs to secure their first title in the tournament's history, a history that goes back to 1989, although uh, the tournament has only been played regularly since 2003. A reminder that the tournament involved eight teams, six of which are off to South Africa for next year's ICC Cricket World Cup, while the UAE and Japan, who were the surprise package as uh, qualifiers in the first place, they're the ones to miss that tournament in Southern Africa in January and February of next year. John, the semi-finals saw Bangladesh defeat India and the UAE overcome Pakistan. So it wasn't quite the the dream final the organisers might have been hoping for, but it was still a terrific tournament, wasn't it? And what a great performance by Bangladesh.
1: Yes, for both India and Pakistan to be defeated in semis was quite extraordinary. I think it does indicate there's some seriously good talent at this level. Terrific performance by Bangladesh, and especially by their opener, Shibley, who swept the UAE away on the day.
0: Sebastian, what about the UAE? They beat Sri Lanka in the group stages and Pakistan in the semifinals before perhaps the occasion got to them a little in the final. But it still must be so encouraging for them. And what a shame they're not going to be going to the ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup as they were, they were beaten to the punch there by uh, Nepal.
2: Yeah, that match itself, I think uh, UAE would be... Looking back at that match, I think they got denied by the Karel's magical hat-trick at the end. UAE had that game on their grasp. But uh, I think their quality was in. so in the Under-19 Asia Cup. They gave top five to test teams, got some wins. I think Ayan Afzal Khan has been real revelation for the UAE cricket. He's performing by the senior team as well, leading the Under-19s really well. And there are a lot of talents for to look out for in the senior side as well. I think Aryan Salma is one to look out. I think Dev Parasar is still waiting for his chance and UAE cricket I think the future is bright sad they will not be going to the World Cup but I think there's a good domestic setup and tournaments in place for these youngsters to show their talents
0: A couple of news lines for you now from the ILT Twenty, the UAE's own 2020 franchise tournament. The first is that the event has secured List A status for this second edition, which means that the runs scored and the wickets taken will count in players' official T20 records. That wasn't the case in the first edition. Secondly, Afghanistan seam bowler Naveen Ul Haq has been banned from the competition for 20 months following a contract dispute with the side he played for in Season 1, the Sharjah Warriors. Naveen was retained on the same terms as he secured in Season 1 but refused to accept them and after the Warriors approached the league to resolve the dispute and following deliberation, this ban is the result. It's quite a blow for Naveen, given on the eve of the ICC Cricket World Cup, he announced he was quitting all but the T20 form of the game But with so many other tournaments uh, on around the world at the same time, providing he can secure a no objection certificate from the Afghanistan Cricket Board, he should still be able to find cricket for himself. Let's look ahead now to what the next week has in store. Finally, as we always do, what are your plans for this week, cricket-wise, uh, gentlemen? And what are you looking forward to? Sebash first of all?
2: Uh, it's going to be the PM Cup Women's Tournament for me here in Nepal. Uh, top eight teams of Nepal are playing, so I'll be busy on that one.
0: Great news there that uh, there's such a, a significant tournament for uh, women in uh, Nepal. John, what about your perspective? Uh, what are you looking forward to?
1: It's a bit of a fallow time, really, so I can only look very far afield, I guess, the um, the next match of the uh, Australia-Pakistan series is going to be one to uh, look at to see if Pakistan can have some sort of uh, resurgence.
0: Well, that's all to look forward to in the future. But uh, in the meantime, thanks very much for joining us here at The Wicked, our whistle-stop trip around uh, the world of this wonderful sport. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard. Wherever you get your podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd, along with John Pike and Sebash Hummergain, saying thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to your company next time.